Hello and welcome to the Life is Story podcast. I'm Josh Olds, and today my special guest is Tessa Afshar, uh, author of Daughter of Rome and a, a lot of other uh, biblical fiction titles. So, uh, Tessa, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for inviting me to be on your podcast, Josh. It's really an honor to share this time with you and your listeners. Now, I just let's start out with the elevator pitch for the book. Uh, what is Daughter of Rome all about? Daughter of Rome is based on the backstory of Priscilla and Aquila. And I think in the Bible, we have six verses that name Priscilla and Aquila, but we don't have a whole lot of information. And my question was, these are the most incredibly interesting people. They, their, their life story seems to be spellbinding. They saved Paul's life. They set up house churches in different cities in the Roman Empire. They're expelled from Rome. So they're very fascinating. And I wanted to examine before they became that, before they became this famous couple in the church and this influential couple, who were they and what did they have to face? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's such a... these, These are such great characters to bring to life. Uh, in this manner, because I think that, at least for myself personally, out of all of the characters that we read about in the New Testament, it's it's these two that I would love to have more information from, because their story does seem so vital to the early church, and that they were so influential, and it, it's it's crazy to me that we only have just a few verses about who they are and what they did, uh, and yet they are, I think, very influential even in our New Testament teaching today. Um, right at the beginning of the book, one of the things, there, there, there are several themes that you draw out uh, throughout the course of the story, um, but one of, one of my favorite themes was just in terms of their marriage relationship, the way that they meet, their differences in background, and the way that they come together. Um, what... How did you develop that storyline? Well, first of all, I wanted to go as deep into the Bible as I could. I write novels. Novels are made-up stories. They're stories of adventure. They're stories of deep emotion. They're stories that bring you into a place where you are away from your real life and you have sunk into a different world. So that's the purpose of a novel, but these characters are from the Bible, and I have to honor the Bible. I'm not writing Bible study, but I have to honor the Bible. So I needed to go deep into the Bible and discover what I could about them. So the name of Priscilla gave me a hint as to who she was, first of all. Priscilla's actual name is Prisca, we know from the Bible, and when you study Latin, you realize that Prisca is the female version of Priscus. And in fact, Priscus is a well-known Roman name. There was a noble Roman family with that last name of Priscus. And so the question becomes, is Priscilla actually a member of that family? And when I researched it further, what you find out is that Romans of noble families sometimes did did name their slaves after their most famous person. So Prisca could easily have been a slave name. Mm -hmm. However, slaves cannot be married. And we know Priscilla was married to Aquila. 
So that meant likely she was not a slave. The second reason she was likely not a slave is that even though Romans did sometimes free their male slaves, especially uh, within marriage age, if they were particularly fond of them, they very rarely released a female slave. Mm. So that brought us back full circle to Priscilla being actually a member of the Priscus family. So to me, that started my adventure of who are these two. She was a Roman, and she belonged to a Roman family. And then she has married a man. We know that Aquila, the Bible tells us, he's a Jew from Pontus. So he's, he, he's from the diaspora, what they call the diaspora, that he's a Jew, but he doesn't live in Israel. And he has a name that is Latin, Aquila, which means that to some degree his family had kind of mixed in with the world around them. But I think, so how do you take a Jew who is a follower of Christ, so he's clearly very committed to Judaism, to his background, and then you marry him to a Roman. So she, at best, started as a God-fearer, a Jew who believed in the Lord, but she's not Jewish. So what kinds of things do you have to resolve right there? As saying hello, what do you have to resolve? And you know, that's very, that's something that even today as contemporary people we have to deal with. When you go on a date, uh, saying hello, what is it that you have to resolve between mm-hmm. you? Uh, when you get married, just as soon as you walk through the door, what are the background issues that you have to resolve between you? Yeah. Yeah, I, I really saw their relationship. Um, it sort of illustrates the early church as a whole and how they're trying to deal with those Jew-Gentile relationships within the early church. The you know, Gentiles are coming in. Um, so we, they're being being converted to Christianity from their pagan religions. And you know Jewish people are a little concerned about what that looks like for them. Um, the Jewish Christians are unsure what it's going to look like. And that whole controversy between Jew and Gentile relationships is sort of at the heart of early Christianity there in the first century, you know, Acts chapter 15 and the um, um, and the, the meeting there to sort of determine that. And then sort of out of that comes Priscilla and Aquila who are kind of the, the ultimate example of bringing those two together. Um, and I, I really, you know, like I said, this is sort of, I think we call them like a power couple in in the New Testament, they're one of the few. I think the reason we we latch onto their story is because they are one of the few husband and wife uh, couples that we see in the New Testament. And to see that they came from such different backgrounds was such a compelling story. To be like, well, if they can conquer this issue in their relationship, well, they can do anything. Um, that sets them up perfectly. Absolutely. That sets them up perfectly for their life and their ministry. Um, so that it's a, it's a, a beautiful storyline and but that's not even like, I don't even know if I would call that the primary storyline, uh, because you also just deal with their development in the early church, their leadership in the early church. And of course, as you, as you deal with leadership in the early church, the, the one thing that always comes up with, with Priscilla, and I think, um, part of why we call her Priscilla and, and try to avoid any sort of, 
confusing name or masculine sounding name is because of history wanting to sort of take away from Priscilla's femininity and take away from the, the, the femaleness of any um, church leader in, in early church history. How did you deal with this, with this concept of women in leadership in the early church, knowing that that is still such a controversial issue uh, today? Yeah, that's such a great, great question. I think part of the reason Priscilla and Aquila, at least for me, were a draw is because when you read those six verses where they're mentioned by name, there are other verses in which, mm-hmm. not very many, but there are other verses in which they kind of come to figure but are not mentioned by name, but only six where they're named. In those six, there's never one without the other. Priscilla and Aquila are always together. And in some of those verses, Priscilla's name is actually mentioned first, which is very unusual because the male name always came before the female name in in writing at the time because men were considered higher or above or more important. And the fact that Priscilla's name came before her husband's is baffling. It could be because she is of higher social standing uh, and or scholars say that in certain cases she could be the more important teacher that she was in in some uh, under some circumstances her teaching trumped Aquila somehow her leadership was that important but certainly we know this one is never mentioned without the other even and this is not a part of the scope of the novel but when they teach Apollos mm-hmm. and they they pull him aside and they say, hey, dude, let's tell, we just need to fill you in a little bit about the Holy Spirit. You're doing great. You're doing great. And and we don't want to embarrass you in front of other people. We want to pull you aside. But let's teach you a little more so you have fuller knowledge of the kingdom of God. They do it together. It's not like, it's not like Aquila says to Priscilla, honey, this is a guy. He's a really important guy. You need to sit this one out. No. They, it's Priscilla and Aquila who teach, and so they, they host the church in their home together. They even work together as workers of leather. They, they, everything in them is together. Mm. So I think part of the way that I address this issue is the fact that just by, by virtue of telling the story and remaining true to the story, they, they are leaders together, and I think that kind of quiets some of the objections a little bit. Mm-hmm. But you also can't you also can't deny that Priscilla does teaching because of these verses. Right. So I'm just being faithful to the scripture. So wherever you land in that argument, wherever you land in that position, it doesn't matter. And and yeah, at the time they had no process of ordination. It wasn't like this one is an ordained pastor, that one isn't. It doesn't work like that. The church didn't have all of those. Those are human-made processes that were added to the church later on. This is just the way the church was developing organically. And so that's that's what I'm writing about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think Priscilla's story can really challenge um, believers today to, um, I think, widen, widen their idea of the way that ministry is done, the, what it looks like, um, because we do get... And we get we don't realize because we unfortunately never like look back to the context of, to context of history that often 
um, to see how different those early church gatherings were to our gatherings today. And um, so it, it, I think it's very challenging for us to look back and say, uh, wow, you know, here, here she was, a, a woman in leadership. And um, I, I know that, you know, due to, due to certain other verses in Scripture, that's become a very controversial and uh, contentious subject. Um, but when mm -hmm. we just, like, look back to, well, this was the reality of the early church. Um, yeah, we see Priscilla uh, working uh, in this environment and not, not necessarily to um, – I think we've made this topic very, it must be male-dominated or it must be female-dominated. And the answer, in truth, lies in this relationship we see with uh, Priscilla and Aquila. And they are coming together in this alliance together to, to work together, to teach, to preach, uh, to live out um, these spirit-infused lives. Uh, it's the Holy Spirit inside of them that is doing this teaching and this working. And they are working together, male and female, in this alliance. I think we have a lot that we could learn from from their relationship. And I think your book helps draw that out. Oh, thank you. You know, Josh, I have to say, I have readers who are from very conservative backgrounds and probably would be horrified at the very thought of um, a woman teaching or... Mm. Or, or taking leadership, and I have readers who are um, fairly on the other side and are very comfortable and would, would discuss the, the, the topic the way you're discussing it. And I think that's the magic of fiction. You have to write fiction in such a way, I want to bring unity. It's mm -hmm. not my position to make a theological statement here. It's not my position to teach a, a, a theological perspective on women here. My position is to tell a story, and I'm telling the story as faithfully to the Bible as I possibly can. Mm -hmm. I'm telling the story of two wounded individuals, male and female, and God is using them despite their brokenness, despite their past, despite all the places in their hearts, in their souls that are cracked and broken and wounded. And that's what the story is really about. It's a in terms of their romance, they have to overcome those wounds. In terms of their ministry, they have to overcome their wounds. I'm not, I, it, this is not a theological statement. It's just a fun story that has some depth to it. Whether you are married or single, as you read this story, it, it tries to touch your heart for God and it tries to empower you to live for God, to have friendships mm -hmm. for God to make a difference for God, and, and have fun as you're reading it. Really, that, that's what it is. Now, if I do anything else, that's great, and that's the work of God. But the, the object of any good fiction is really to bring the readers together into this other world, and as biblical fiction specifically, that that other world will somehow lift up your soul in a closer way to God when you're done with a book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I think you do a great, you do a great job of that. Um, because I, I read a lot, um, and I read a lot of biblical fiction and the difficulty that I have seen authors, different authors go through is that because they are drawing their source material from a nonfiction source, 
and not just any nonfiction source, but from a nonfiction source that is holy and revered, that they can sort of lapse mm-hmm. into a very, um, well, I have to teach theology through this, or I have to be very yeah. di- didactic yeah. uh, in in the message that comes across in this novel, or I have to be very uh, strict in my adherence to to scripture, and if I can pick on on Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye, who actually took quite liberties uh, with scripture in their Left Behind series, but finished it up uh, in the in the well one of the final books. And when Jesus comes back, Jesus only speaks in the King James Version English. And I, I found, <laughs> you know, I, I that would that's been 15, what fifteen maybe twenty years ago, and I still remember that, you know, as a young person reading that and just thinking. This, you know, like you you didn't <laughs> you didn't get this right um, because it doesn't sound natural. It doesn't sound. Um, it, it sounds like you felt tied to the nonfiction so much that you couldn't create a good fiction, and that's got to be the struggle with biblical fiction. And I've I've read um, more. I haven't read all of your books, but I, I've read more than one, and you do it so well. How do you find that balance of of being faithful to the source material, uh, but but not uh, be, not being a slave to it either? Thank you so much for saying that. I think for me, the the way it works for me is first of all, I'm a voracious reader. I love reading. I love historical fiction. So mm-hmm. I understand as a reader when I come to fiction, what it is that I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. I understand the appeal of historical fiction to me. So in a sense, I'm writing historical fiction, but I'm writing historical fiction that is framed by the Bible. And I I cannot forget either one. I can never forget that I'm writing historical fiction, and I can never forget that my framework is the Bible. So I need to remain very faithful to the principles of the Bible and to the story that the Bible is laying out for me. But again, I'm trying not to write Bible study. In fact, when I was writing Daughter of Rome, the last three chapters, I I extended it beyond Corinth. Mm -hmm. And my editors, when they got the draft, they wrote me back and they said, look, these three chapters don't work. They sound like Bible study. The writing is fine. It's not that I I was writing poorly. It's just that I was telling it like a Bible study. And we literally chopped those three chapters. And and instead, I used uh, more of the sort of the tools that are available to me as a fiction writer to build up the characters in the beginning of the book. Mm -hmm. And and I think that's, that's sort of a... It's it's a very hard trick. I fall into it myself. I don't. I, I my heart goes out to all my co-writers in this genre. It's a difficult genre to to grasp. Mm-hmm, and sure. if their desire is to, I, I I never read those books that you mentioned. That the later ones, I read the the early ones, like the first one or two. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. if the desire is to honor God. I think they will. It may not really please the, the the person who's a genuine historical fiction reader. That may not appeal to you at all. But there are people who will read that, and somehow it will touch them in ways that the Bible alone wouldn't have. So it, it, I, I think it's good. 
it may not be my cup of tea, but that doesn't mean it's not good. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's a good way of putting it. Um, one of the questions that was here on the list that Tyndale gave me uh, was a question that I probably wouldn't thought of asking myself, which means that I'm going to guess that it has a good answer. Uh, so that's just, do you have a favorite <laughs> minor character from the book? I actually... I, I don't know what I put for the answer there, but I think that uh, I think I love the dog, mm-hmm. Ferox. Yeah, and it's it's funny because I, I think that dog had just came to have more and more of a presence in the novel. At the beginning, it was just sort of in the scene. I needed something to create the conversation that I wanted them to be having, mm-hmm. and so I sort of this dog showed up. And I intended the dog just to show up and go away. But the dog was so kind of appealing that he, he came back and he got adopted into the family. <laughs> so sometimes characters kind of show up as just, you know, they're not pre-planned. They, you have no intention. They're just meant to be kind of a tool to carry a particular scene through its arc and then the character shows up and and the character has so much going for it that you have to keep the character. Mm-hmm. And when the character so that, is a that, very cute uh, dog, even better. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I don't own dogs when I was little. We had dogs mm-hmm. and it's been many years since I've had dogs, but I do have a few literary dogs because honestly, <laughs> they don't shed, they mm. don't bark. They don't wake you up in the middle of the night. They don't chew up furniture, but they're really fun to have around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought it was an interesting addition because I, you know, I know that for the time period, um, that dogs weren't necessarily a domesticated uh, animal all the time, and um, and I think they. And I'm I'm sort of spitballing here, but I think there was. A, also some cultural differences between how Romans and, and Jews would treat, would treat dogs. So, um, you know, it's kind of a, a, just a unique, a, a unique entry, uh, in, into the book that, that I think that add, just adds some, adds some fun flavor to it. Yeah. In fact, Romans did have dogs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, it, if you walked by, uh, even today, I think in Vesuvius, you will see, some of the tiles that have, uh, and that's how I got the name Ferox. Mm-hmm. It, it was on, uh, it was from the Roman material, but they they would have tiles like of a growling dog, and essentially that tile was saying beware of dog. Mm-hmm. So they would have guard dogs. So and and the guard dogs would have, uh, would be properly collared and. So in fact, it was a very modern way of having dogs and uh and i think probably for the jewish population that wasn't as true so he had to deal with that mm-hmm. the, or, or i had to deal with that in the context right. of of how how dogs how did dogs kind of end up in this household mm-hmm. um one last question for you and then i'll let you go actually out too and just just if there's only one thing that your readers can take away from this book, it, it's so multifaceted, uh, it's so rich and layered, uh, but if they could only take away one thing, what would you hope for them to come away from this book thinking? 
I think depending on whether you're a male or female, for me, the one thing for a woman is the realization that regardless of women deal a lot with guilt and we can forgive others and we can say, oh, that's okay. But the way you deal with yourself and your own guilt tends to be a lot harsher. And there are things from your past that you may find unforgivable. And you may not necessarily consciously be thinking it, but that, that condemnation is always eating at your soul and it's always feeding certain negative thoughts about yourself Mm -hmm. and about the way you live life and i think that the takeaway from this book for me is the utter incomprehensible beauty of the grace and forgiveness of god Mm -hmm. that applies to you yes to you even you Mm -hmm. and to be able to live that out in fullness not as a theological thought trapped in your head while your heart is living a different life but being transformed by the whole of it that there is nothing in your life that you could have done or that could have been done to you that is beyond this restoring redeeming power of grace so that's the takeaway i think specifically for for women Mm. and maybe for men too i mean it's not as if men are above that but i think specifically for for men when i was writing aquila I think Aquila was, I, I loved Aquila. Aquila was a gentle, kind, kind man, very capable man. But he also struggled with being able to trust God with provision because he was a provider for the family. He, all the responsibility at the end fell on him. And, and I would like men, after coming away from this book, to sort of realize, you know what? I may be I may be right at the end of my strength. I may be looking down at having absolutely no way to feed my family by the end of the week, but I can trust God hmm. even if I can't trust myself. I may have no recourse, but God has recourse. So that so and elevating themselves above that sense of failure, that sense of condemnation that comes when you feel like you are not being a good provider. Yeah. Yeah. So last question for you, and this is a question that I hate to ask, but in your case, uh, this book actually came out about, I think, four months ago. I think it came out in February of 2020. Um, and, and I know that you, you, I think, just finished your next project. So I always like to end by asking, what's next? And I feel bad about it because, you know, you've most times <laughs> authors have just spent, you know, a year or so pouring themselves into a story and they talk to me about it for 30 minutes and then I'm just like, okay, what you got coming? Um, so in this case, I'll just ask you, um, I do want to end because I am excited for whatever it is you have next and whatever characters you decide to tackle next. So what do you got for me? Thank you so much, Josh. Yeah, actually, a bit between that and the next novel, I, I just released a Bible study based on the book of Ruth. Mm-hmm. called The Way Home. And so that was that was kind of me stepping away from the fiction and going into the nonfiction world for a minute. But in the meantime, I've been working on a story I, that some of the readers have been really asking. This, the way you write biblical fiction, the books are tied together loosely so they can be read individually. But mm-hmm. this is really a trilogy of books. The Thief of Corinth, The Daughter of Rome is the second book. And the third book, which we don't have a name for yet, the main character is Theo. You met Theo in this book, Daughter of Rome, a little bit. Uh, you will have met him even more in 
the first book, Thief of Corinth. And a lot of readers, when they read Thief of Corinth, they were like, what? You can't leave Theo like this. Are you going to write a story for him? And yes, I, I have written a story for him. And so the third novel is about that. The other thing that I'm really sort of excited about in that novel was I had actually plotted it, planned it out, and uh, was about to uh, write the book when I received a just a letter from a fan. Uh, you know, when, when you're a writer, you receive lots of letters. But this one hit me differently. It was from a young fan. I don't know her name. I can't remember it. I can't find the email because it was quite a few months ago. And she said she was younger, I remember. And she said she loved the books. And she was an African-American reader, a young lady. And she said, are you ever going to write about a heroine who looks like me? Because it means a lot to me. You know, I'm, I'm just even getting teary-eyed thinking about it. And she said, it means a lot to me to find women who look like me in these books. And so I, I kind of had to, I sat down and I felt like that was really something from the Lord to me. I couldn't set it aside. And I rewrote the whole story um, in my head, came up with a completely different heroine and uh, so that she could be, she's half from Africa, half from Kush. And so so that someone like her could find herself. It's because I write biblical fiction. I think I need to show that before God, we're all heroines. Yeah. It doesn't matter the color of our skin. It's that we all have to find ourselves in this book and in, the, in these books. It, it, it's, it's part of my responsibility to show that. And so I'm really excited about that. Yeah, well, I'm, I am excited to read it. That sounds great. Uh, well, Tessa, thank you so much for taking time uh, out of your day to be on the program. I really appreciate it. Uh, and again, the book is Daughter of Rome. It released in February of this year, so it is available in bookstores. It's available on the Tyndale website. Um, but go, go if it is safe for you to go out. Um, order this from your local bookstore. Support your local businesses, especially in this time, because um, they need your support. Mm -hmm.